I want to invite you to take your Bibles and let's open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I know uh, the text says 2 Corinthians 13, but we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, this afternoon in the Gospel of John. So I want you to open there so long, John chapter 5, while I read for us the, the text for our study today is 2 Corinthians 13. So you're welcome to open to John 5 as I read for us 2 Corinthians those of you visiting us, we're busy with a mini-series on communion with the triune God. And um, two Sundays ago, uh, just a basic uh, sermon on the, the Trinity and what the Trinity is, how to understand it. And now, Lord willing, we will look at communion with every person of the Trinity. And today we're focusing specifically on communion with the Father, how communion with the Father should look like, what it is, and hopefully encourage you as well to pursue your Father in communion with Him. And so the text, a very well-known text, many churches end their services with this verse, and, and this is the text we'll be studying as well. The text says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So according to that passage, we see that Paul attributes one thing that highlights every person of the Trinity and that he wishes should be with the church. And so when he thinks of Christ, he thinks of his grace. And when he thinks of God there, God the Father, he thinks specifically of his love. That's what stands out about the Father for us, is the Father's love. And therefore today I'm attempting to do an impossible task, to try to help you understand the love of God for you. It's like Paul said in Ephesians 3, right? I'm praying for you that you might understand the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. So understand something that's above understanding. So good luck with that. Okay. But I am going to try and just show you what the Bible says about the love of God. Because at the very least, we should think biblically about it. And then we can apply it to our lives and how it should change us from the inside out and our love for the Father as well. So... So we have communion with God in love, we come to the Father by the grace of Christ, and we have fellowship with them both by the Spirit. The Spirit unites us to the Father and the Son. And with fellowship with the Father, I have the ordinary idea, when I use the word fellowship, I just have the ordinary or communion, I have the idea of giving and sharing. So when you have communion with someone, when you have fellowship with someone, there's, a, there's both a giving and a receiving. That's what makes marriage so great, right? It's a total giving and a total receiving of another person. And here, God invites us to have this giving and sharing with Him. We ought to spend time with the Father, enjoy His love for us, and give back to Him with worship, thanksgiving, and obedience. So we receive God's love, and then we give back to the Father and to God in our worship, thanksgiving, and love. So we will study God's love in three categories. Um, there, are, uh, there are a lot more, but I've tried to summarize it in three. We're going to look at the love of the Father for the Son, for His creation, and for His elect, and then apply it to us. So first, consider the Father's love for His Son. You will never understand the love of God for you if you don't understand the love of the Father for His own Son. You have to begin there. And I think that's why... Today, many people don't understand the love of God because they don't understand this in, intra or inter-Trinitarian love for God himself. God's love for his son is infinite, white-hot, 
passion of adoration for his son. You see that glimpse of the father's love for his son at the baptism of Jesus. What happens? The heavens tore, tear, tear open. I think so. Tore open. The spirit descends on the son. And the father speaks and says what? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, we as humans get a small glimpse of that when you pick up your, your son or your child. Like uh, if my two boys were here, I wish I could use them as a living illustration right in front. If I pick up Alakai and Jordan, there's, my chest just feels a little bit broader and I'm swelling up. And I just want to say, just look at him. Right, just look at him. (laughs) That's my son, right? He's my son. And that's what the father feels when he looks at his son. It's as if you can see the father's chest swelling with pride and just look at him. Flawless. Perfect. That's my son. So you have to understand that. From all of eternity past, the father enjoyed a perfect love, a perfect fellowship with his son. And the father's love for his son is with omniscience. And what I mean by that is the father knows the son to, it, to his depths. He knows everything about the son. There's nothing about the son he doesn't know. And everything he sees in his son is nothing but perfection. That's all he sees. Now consider this text in John 5. John chapter 5 helps us Get a glimpse into the love of the Father for the Son and love of the Son for the Father. So in John 5, the context here was that Jesus healed a man that was crippled or lame, and he told him to pick up his bed and to walk. But the problem was that was on the Sabbath. So when the Pharisees saw him walking with his bed, they stopped him and said, what are you doing? You're breaking the Sabbath. And he said, no, that man told me I could. <laughs> okay. Now, now the Pharisees are coming and the leaders are coming to Jesus and they're confronting him. And look at Jesus' response. He's not responding by going into a debate about the Sabbath. He, he tells them something about his father. Okay, look at John 5 verse 17. So we pick it up in John 5 verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, you might feel that's just a very simple claim, but Jesus is making an astounding claim here. The context of this claim is the context of where a son would grow up with his father, and whatever the father does, he would follow in his footsteps. He would copy the father, imitate him. In that culture, it was very likely that if your father was a doctor, you would be a doctor. Okay? If your father was a blacksmith, you would be a blacksmith. Right? You, you just look at what the father does and you copy him. So again, if I could use the blacksmith as an example, the blacksmith, the father, shows his son exactly what kind of metal to use, how to put it into the fire, how long to keep it there, where to strike it so that it bends exactly right. And the saying, like father, like son, was very true in this culture. Because the son would take over the family business, would take over the family and be the family protector of the family secrets, the family traditions. Now, in that sense, you and I also are sons of God in that we can copy and imitate God. And when we do that, we are sons of God in that reflection of God. So consider Matthew 5 verse 7, for example. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see? So we, when we are peacemakers, we are reflecting our father who is the ultimate peacemaker. No one is a better peacemaker than the Father. And so when we are reflecting God, imitating him, we too are in a a small letter S, 
son of, sons of God as we reflect him. Now, here's where we differ from Jesus. We can't be sons of God in every aspect because we're not God, right? For example, you can't be a son of God in creation because only God can create out of nothing. Only God was there in the beginning to create. So we can't imitate him in creating something out of nothing. But now look at what Jesus is saying. He says, why is he working on the Sabbath? Why is he, quote, breaking the Sabbath? Because verse 17, he's saying, my father is working and I am working. So Jesus is making himself equal to the Father. He's making himself equal to God in a unique way that's not true of you and me. And that's why the very next verse, look at verse 18. The Jews understood this. They said, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. You see, so in that sense, he was claiming to be equal because he says, I have shared in my father's work of the Sabbath, my father's work in, the, in creation. I was there with him from the beginning, right? But how could you share the work of creation unless you are God yourself? And that's the point. He is, right? And now Jesus tells us why. Look at, look at verse 19 to 20. Quickly. It says, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father, now here's the key verse you need to watch. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. You see, so this, we imitate God sometimes. But we fail, right? We don't copy God perfectly. We sin frequently. We are not always doing what the Father is doing. And, but Jesus, on the other hand, is doing always what the Father is doing and doing nothing except what the Father does. That would be a perfect human being. Would you agree? Someone that says, everything that God does, that's what I do. And nothing, nothing more, nothing less. And that's why only Jesus perfectly reflects the Father, perfectly shows us what the Father is like. He is the perfect man. If you look at Jesus, you see the Father in his perfection. Now, Jesus tells us why the Father shows him everything. Did you see why in verse 20? Just look at that verse 20 again. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So back to the blacksmith illustration. Why does the father show the son the kind of metal, the family tradition and that has been handed down for centuries? Why does the father do that? Well, the simple answer is because he loves his son. He loves him. So do you get the picture? This is perfect love with perfect fellowship of a father who feels nothing but pleasure for his son and therefore shows him everything he is. And that's why the father shows him everything, right? It is because he loves him. And vice versa, the son loves the father by obeying him. Now, just turn over to John 14 quickly with me. So John 14, verse 31. John 14, 31, Jesus says, But I do as the father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the father. So, the father's love for the son is in showing him everything he is, and the son's love to the father is in responding to that love 
by obeying him and doing everything he says. You see, this perfect harmony between the Father and the Son. And that has been a harmony between the Father and the Son from all of eternity past. There's never been a moment when the Father and the Son didn't experience this up until this point, right, with this fellowship. Now, that lays a foundation for understanding God's love for you and God's love for me. But before we go to that, I want us to go to the second point, lest you misunderstand my third point. <laughs> so are you, I hope you're, you're staying with me. So the second point I want to add for clarification is the Father's love for all of his creation. So the Father's love for the Son is unique in that no one he loves as his Son. But then secondly, we see the Father's love for all of his creation. God created all things for his own glory. And this is also important. God didn't create the world because he was lonely or because he wanted company or friendship or fellowship. God needs nothing and never will. He is self-sufficient. This is Acts 17. Listen to this great verse. Acts 17 verse 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now here's the key, key verse. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. So we don't come to God giving him something that he lacked, right? He needs, we, we, we don't serve him like that. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the fountain of living waters. So it was out of sheer love that the father created for his son. To show his glory, to show his goodness, his wisdom, his his love. And this love of God extends even to things like plants and animals. That's just the kind of God he is. Okay, Listen to Matthew 6, verse 26. Jesus says, when's the last time you looked at the birds? Okay. Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet who feeds them? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Or you have not more value than they. Matthew 6, verse 28, just a few verses down. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither soil or toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See the point there? So God cares for insignificant things because he loves them he, he cares for birds he cares for grass and how much more will he not care for you god cares even for a sparrow falling to the ground matthew 10 29 are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father not one bird dies except by god's will so God's, will, God's love stretches to the plants, to the animals, to the trees, but it also stretches to people that hate him, to people that doesn't love him. Matthew 5, a very well-known verse, right? Matthew 5 is 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here we have another example of, being a son of God by loving our enemies. So when you love your enemies, guess who you are imitating? Your father who loves his enemies. What's the proof? Well, the sun came up. It's raining, right? God sends it over everybody, whether they love him or not. That's God's universal love for all people. 
And so with us, by just being kind to our enemies, being good, when they don't deserve it. You see, I like it that it doesn't say, you shall like your enemies. <laughs> okay. That's not what it says, okay? But it does say, love your enemies, which means be kind to them, be good to them. When they are in need, provide for them. Even when you feel they don't deserve it, that's the point. We don't deserve the sun and the rain and God gives it. And so imitate God, reflect him by being kind to those who make your life difficult. And this love for unbelievers includes a desire. And this is very important, especially for us Calvinists. If you are Calvinists, you listen to that. Very important, okay? This love includes a longing and a desire for unbelievers to be saved without exception. This is what the Bible says. John 3.16 God so loved the world. Now, I, don't, I think it's a mistake if you make the world the elect. I don't think that's the point of this verse. I think the, the verse means God's love extends to every person. He longs for all to be saved, that the whoever believes. Look at 1 Timothy 2 verse 3. Another verse, 1 Timothy 2 verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desire all people to be saved. And I think that means God desires all people to be saved. <laughs> That's what I think it means. He genuinely longs and desires for all people to be saved. When an unbeliever dies and goes to hell, God doesn't find pleasure in that, in a sense. Listen to Ezekiel 33 verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the heart of our God. And we dare not lose it for the sake of God's sovereignty. Don't lose these passages because you hold to the sovereignty of God. And also, don't lose the sovereignty of God because you hold to these passages. So there's a sense where you never lie when you tell anyone randomly, God loves you. He longs for you to be, to be saved. Come, whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. That includes you. If you believe, if you would turn from your sin, and if you put your trust in Jesus, at that moment you will be saved, forgiven of all your sins, and be co-heirs with Christ and an inheritance with him. So that's incredibly important. And I hope I put that in clear enough that you can Appreciate the third point, which is the Father's love for his elect. So yes, God loves all people, especially his elect. God loves all people, especially his children. The Father desires all to be saved and yet only saves those whom he has chosen to save. And that is according to his good pleasure, according to his own will and wisdom and grace. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. Now, there's the word, beloved by the Lord. Okay, how does Paul know these are beloved? He says, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose believers to be saved. And that's a special love. That's a love that he gives to some but not to everybody, because not everybody is saved. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So 
This is a love that is special to the believers in Rome, but not for all. Christ, too, has a special love for his wife, for his bride. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I think marriage is the best illustration of this. None of you are angry with me for loving my wife in a special way. Right? In fact, you should be angry with me if I don't. Now, I love all women as a, in an appropriate way, as the image bearers of God, but I love my wife above all of them in a special way that none of you would share ever. That's God's love. This is an illustration of God's love for his elect. And listen, he chose us. He has chosen to save us by nothing good in you based solely on his own will and his own purpose. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 4. It says, even as God, now here the he specifically is the Father. Even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now why? Why did he do that? Look at the verse. According to the purpose of his will. It wasn't according to our faith, according to our will, according to something in us. It's according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, you might ask me this question. How can number two and number three be true at the same time? How could God genuinely desire all people to be saved, but then only choose some to be saved? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, generally speaking, Christians have tried to answer that in two ways. I think one is makes sense, but I don't think that's the biblical answer. And the second, I believe, is the biblical answer. So the first way Christians have wrestled with this is to actually deny that God chose people to be saved and rather say God's invitation is open for all, but he so respects people's free will that he doesn't want to force them to love him. And therefore, that when people go to hell or people don't are saved, it's ultimately because of their own free will and their own free choice. Now, of course, there's some truth in that statement, right? Because when we sin, we sin willingly. When we reject God, we reject God willingly. And that does make sense, but I don't think that's the biblical answer. The second answer, and I believe is biblical, is that God truly does desire all people to be saved and yet only chooses to save some to glorify his name. That last part is the answer. Why doesn't God save all? To the praise of his glory. It's about him. It's not about you and me. And I think the text that comes the closest to answering this question directly is Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read. It's quite a long passage, but I want you to see it for yourself. So Romans 9 verse 18 to 23. Romans 9 verse 18 to 23. So again, the statement is just made. He has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's a great question, right? If this is true, if God does truly just have mercy on whomever he wills, if he's really that free, then how can God judge us? Who can, how can we resist his will? That's the, that's the objection. Here's the answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Look at verse 23. Here's the answer. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why are there vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Answer, and I'm quoting, in order to make known the riches of his glory. You see, what is this about? It's about his glory, and but don't miss the second half, for vessels of mercy, for you and me. His glory, our joy. That's the biblical answer. To allow his people to see his glory, his absolute riches of his grace. Now, if that's difficult to hear, which I expect would be for some of you, perhaps most of you, all of you, let me just encourage you with this thought. God doesn't send anyone to hell who doesn't deserve it. Not one person goes to hell unjustly. Abraham asked God in Genesis 18, Shall the judge of, the, of all the earth not do what is right? What's the answer there? Of course, all the time. God never does wrong. God is infinite in his wisdom. And I think in this too, we need to trust him. And now let's close with three applications. So I just want to confess at this point, I wish I had a whole nother sermon just for the applications, but because it felt like I was scratching the surface. Um, so I literally had to pick and choose the best ones, and I hope it is the best. So the first one is now in this understanding this about God, see the great cost of the Father to redeem us. Now, now that you understand how much the Father loves the Son, now you can understand how much it cost him to sacrifice him on the cross for us. And there's something you need to understand about this sacrifice as well. It was for people that has sinned against him. And what I mean by that is, our sins was against an infinitely holy God. We are infinitely worthy to go to hell. We are infinitely offensive to him because of our rebellion against him. God could, if he wanted to, not save one person, send all of us to hell, and he would have been good and holy and just. Just like the devil. Just like his angels. God didn't spare the devil. He didn't give him grace. And none of us feels that justice has been robbed. But we are no better than the devil. We are children of the devil by birth. And so we too deserve to go to hell. So if God decided to save none, he would have been good. In fact, that's what he should do. That's what he was supposed to do. Instead, he chose to save us from our sins by giving up the one person he loves more than anything else. Instead of judging us and condemning us, pouring out his wrath on us, he did all of that on the son he loved from all of eternity past. So here's the picture. Here's the full picture. God gave up the person that deserves nothing but love for people that deserve nothing but wrath. 
Does that make sense? Can it make sense for us? It, it, it's impossible to understand this. If I can, I'm going to use a human illustration to try to just give you the surface level understanding of this. Imagine a serial child rapist in court who's found guilty and sentenced to death. The judge saying, climbing off of his chair and saying, I'll take the death penalty in his place. I will empty my life savings and pay for him to go live on a private island for the rest of his life, all expenses paid. You would look at that and like, that guy is crazy, right? But one thing you'd say, this guy loves this man for some reason. And that's just, the, that's just like a glimpse of how much the father has loved us. He gave up his son for people like us who deserve nothing but his anger, his judgments, his wrath. And we get heaven. We get God. We are co-heirs with Christ, Listen to this quote from William P. Farley. I love this quote. He says, The Father paid this price in the absence of any obligation to us, in in the absence of any need in himself, despite infinite enmity toward us and despite our utter helplessness. He did it because he loves us. He did it to exercise grace. He did it to glorify his grace. So, This is how God has loved us. And that's why you have to begin with the love of the Father for the Son to see that this sacrifice was one of incredible love. And this is what Scripture emphasizes. When the Bible talks of the love of God, it emphasizes above everything else the sacrifice of His Son. The famous John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. 1 John 4, verse 8 to 10 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5 verse 8. But God, here God is the father. God the father shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this immediately dispels a lot of misconceptions about God, God the Father. First, it destroys the kind of suspicion that the Father is the angry one and the Son is the really gentle, gracious one, right? As if the Son had to plead with the Father not to, not to kill people, not to judge people, and just hoping that he doesn't by saying, I'll, I'll die in their place. Why, why is that so wrong? Because it's the Father who sends the Son. The Father loved the world. The, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons. It was His Son that He gave. It was His plan. So that's first. Throw that idea out. The Trinity are working. The persons of the Trinity are working together to redeem us. And second, it clarifies how you could still believe that God loves you despite going through incredible sufferings in this life. The world thinks that God loves them when everything goes well, that that's the proof that God loves us, right? Because if God loves me, then everything should go well. I should not experience any suffering, any um, discomfort. But again, God's love is not like our love. His love is holy. It's different. Like the heavens are far above 
the earth so different is his thoughts than our thoughts and his love from our love. In this is love. Not that God gave us a house, a car, a wife, a husband, a degree. But in this is love that he gave up his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So third, this means that anything that does happen to you, whether suffering or good things, happens only to you because God loves you, not in spite of God loves you. And this is the logic of Romans 8.32, one of the verses we just go back to over again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, we saw how God cares for animals, cares for birds and the plants. But guess what? Jesus didn't die for birds. Jesus didn't die for the plants. He died for us. He cares for birds. He cares for the grass. But he loves us by sending his son for us. That we might be with him for all of eternity. Even if you in this life become the second Job the book of Job, that is, right? As Job, it will only be because the Father loves you. That's the first application or implication, really, of God's love. And secondly, second application is the Father's love can only be experienced through Christ. It's the only way you and I can taste and see that the Father is good. So, because since God is holy and we are sinful, it is only through His Son that we are reconciled to him. That's the famous John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you don't come to God with your good works, your list of achievements and hope that that would impress him and say, God, look at what I've done. Surely you must love me. By no means. Isaiah 64, I think, verse 6, talks about our best works, our good deeds like a filthy garment. Paul said the verse, the, the song we sang, like I count all of it as rubbish. Greek is skubalon, poop, dung. If my good works are as disgusting to God because it's not done to the glory of God. And so even for my good works, I deserve to go to hell. So you, you don't come to the Father with your resume, your CV. You come to him through his son. When the Father sees his son, he loves you as well for the sake of his son. When you are in Christ, your, all your sins are washed away. His righteousness are your clothes. And when you stand before him, God the Father can see you and love you like he loved his own son. You see, the Son is loved by virtue of who He is. We are loved by virtue of our adoption. See, we are not natural children. We're not legitimate children. We are all illegitimate. We are all sinners. We all deserve to be cast away. But in Christ, we are adopted. We belong to the family. We are co-heirs with Christ. And that's just an astounding truth. And that's why you have to love Christ and put your faith in Christ to come to the Father. And lastly, we respond to this love of God with faith, with thanksgiving, and obedience. So here's a very crucial question. 
How do you receive God's love for you? So this is true. God is love. God loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever, that includes you and me, you, whoever would believe in him would not perish. How do you receive it? And it's, the simple answer is this. It is so true that God is love, that he has showed his love, that all you have to do is to believe it. That's how you receive it, by faith. You receive it when you believe it. When you say, God, I see it. I see how you loved me. And I'm not going to be so proud to not receive it. I'm going to humble myself under this almighty love that is breaking me in half. But that's okay. I'm going to receive it and thank you for it. I'm just going to trust it. I know it doesn't make sense to me, but Lord, I trust it. John Owen wrote in his great book, Communion with God, this following sentence. This is a great, great sentence. He says, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. Think about that. That's so true. That is the greatest burden you can put on a father is to believe that He doesn't love you. My son once, once, said to his little brother, out of nowhere, I really believe there was some demonic and spiritual warfare involved there. Just randomly out of the blue, Alakai, Papa doesn't love you. <laughs> I don't know why, maybe wanted to hurt him. But nothing in me made me more angry when I heard that. And I asked him to repeat it in my presence. I, do, I dared him. Jordan, just say that again. I just wanted to hear what you say. And he couldn't finish it because he knows it's false. So listen to me. There's nothing further from the truth than that I love you and I love you, Alakai. And don't you ever doubt that. And if that's just true of me as an earthly, sinful father, how much more would it be true of our father in heaven? It's humbling. You have to receive it by faith. Trust it. For yourself. No, your sins are not too many. Christ paid for it all. His life, his death, his resurrection swallowed it up, buried it in the grave, gone forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far are your sins removed from you. The Father, too, when he looks at you, feels nothing but pleasure and joy and acceptance because of Christ. Therefore, the only proper response is to thank him. Right, We receive it by faith and we thank him. Let us thank our Father often for this. Let us meditate often on the great cost that the Father paid to make us his own. Let that lead us onward in our worship. And then let us obey him. There's a very interesting passage. In, I hope you're still open in John. If not, quickly turn to John 15 verse 9 to 10. And this is the last couple of verses we'll be reading and we'll close off. John 15, verses 14 to 15. It says, uh, sorry, verses um, 9 to 10. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So remember what we saw in John chapter 5. How did the Father love the Son? By showing him everything. Now the Son says, as the Father loved me like that, now I love you like that. And what does he mean? I'm going to show you everything about me. I'm revealing my life to you. 
And now what must you do is you must abide in my love. How do we abide in the love of Christ? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see? Remember what we saw. How does the Son love the Father? By obeying him. That's how Jesus was experiencing the love of the Father by being obedient. And now in the same way, we too must obey the Father like his Son. And as you obey him, you too will experience the love of God. It's as if, if, if you can imagine the Father like the Son and the Son rays of oh, the Father as the Son, the Son that's shining, and the Son rays as Jesus, right? That's how we feel God's love is when we see and feel it through Christ, when we come to him through Christ. Listen to this verse, Jude 21. It says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So see, so God's love for you never changes. It is constant. It is fixed. But what you and I need to do is to keep his commandments. And when we do that, you will experience, you, you stay in his love. So do you want communion with the Father? Receive it by faith. Respond to him with thanksgiving. And then listen to his son. <laughs> this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Remember, that was at the mountain of transfiguration. Do that. And you will feel God's love for you, the Father's love for you, as you follow his son in obedience. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we don't understand your love. And Lord, I really feel that we've just literally scratched the surface of your love for us and how we can love you and know your love and experience it and have communion with you in your love. So, dear Holy Spirit, we ask you for your guidance and your help to lead us into the love of the Father for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, that we might share in their love, in this Trinitarian love together. Lord, in those areas where we might be confused and maybe even misunderstandings, Father, please dispel that for us, clarify it for us. May we taste all things according to your word and then submit our hearts and our minds under your word as we wrestle with these things, Lord. But Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him in your infinite love, Lord, which transcends our understanding for us, people who deserve nothing but your anger. Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.